0: This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Anchoring Truths Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we're pleased to be bringing you part two of one of our most significant recent events at the James Wilson Institute. Professor Jerry Bradley, Senior Fellow and Trustee at the James Wilson Institute, delivered a lecture titled Moral Truth and Constitutional Conservatism. In our last installment of the Anchoring Truths Podcast, we brought you part one of Professor Bradley's lecture. We're now pleased to bring you part two. We hope you enjoy the program. Wait a minute. Conservatives don't do value judgments, right? We call the litany about umpiring, about how it's law all the way down. Stanza four, don't take seriously what the Supreme Court justices say they are doing. Watch what they do. For the roster of issues which require value judgments for their adjudication, faithful to the Constitution, is as long as the road to Zanzibar. And it's a descending pathway. In the Heights, you need to identify the historical meaning of a constitutional provision, the C stanza one, about religion, natural religion, etc. the Bladensburg Cross. This stage in the Heights is what's called, I think somewhat strictly, but helpfully, constitutional interpretation. A select list of these issues includes laws impairing the obligation of contract, excessive bail, and fines. It includes the guarantees of just compensation for takings and a fair trial. It extends to the meaning of such key constitutional terms as religion, speech, liberty, and a compelled confession. Especially because, following Aristotle here, the meaning best suited in these contexts is to be had by grasping the point, the purpose, the good that a constitutional provision is want that is trying to do. Want to define religion? Figure out what the free exercise of religion clause is for. How is it related to the good of persons? Now, downslope lies the site for constructing doctrine. In Thomas terms, this is determinatio, Creating rules and standards, deriving them from principles or at least larger norms, but where these rules or standards are determinate enough to actually resolve cases. Examples the ailing, uh, and probably on life support, Lemon three part establishment clause test, or the four part O'Brien test for content neutral regulation of expressive conduct or the prevailing Smith free exercise test, neutrality and general applicability. There are a lot more. Or, here's one everybody knows, you have the right to remain silent. Now the court this term is considering whether Miranda warnings, and this is how it's presented to the reader, to me, are part of the Constitution or merely a judge made prophylactic. But either way, no one thinks that Miranda is somehow inevitably or obviously in the Constitution. Everyone recognizes that Miranda was an act of creative judicial lawmaking rooted in, yes, some behavioral premises about the psychological pressures at the station house. That's true. But Miranda was also a value-laden choice by the justices to sacrifice probative evidence and some convictions and thus suffer the injustice of unredressed crime for the sake of protecting prophylactically against the risk of a coerced confession. Agree or not with how the Miranda Court resolved it, my point is it was a choice between these two goods. And the Miranda court decided that the latter, that is reducing the chances of receiving an actually coerced confession into evidence, reducing that risk to near zero, outweighed the cost in convictions. Now down in the valley, you need to apply the rules or standards to the facts at hand. For example, the court's definition of the Fourth Amendment phrase probable cause The court's definition from the 1983 Gates vs. Illinois case, it's the canonical case. It's not arithmetic or statistical. It just resists any um, assimilation to numerical values. It is an entirely fluid, normative, fair probability. Again, the definition of probable cause is not especially helpful since it uses the word Probable. But the definition of probable cause is fair probability. Probable cause is a norm of justice that's explicit in the warrant clause, which requires resort to a comparison of values or goods in order to yield up an up or down answer. The suppression motion is denied or granted. Now the court also decided decades ago to read this norm of justice, which is in the Constitution, it's non-negotiable, for warrants into warrantless Fourth Amendment activity, too. This was a, this is determinatio, judicial concretization of the broad, and and yes, I suppose, open-ended reasonableness clause. That move, that is to insert probable cause into the reasonableness context, and, and really for the court to take over and supply an entire common law of search and seizure, under the aegis of the reasonableness clause. That's made for many a suppression hearing and almost as many appellate headaches. Now some of the judges in the room may be nodding. Don't blame me, uh, I wrote a Law Review article when I was a mere tyke in 1988, making the historical case that the unreasonableness clause in the Fourth Amendment was prefatory, or I think more exactly precatory just as the court concluded in Heller Heller, that the Militia Clause is in the Second Amendment. That is to say, like the Militia Clause in the Second Amendment, the court said in Heller, I argued, based on historical sources, that the Unreasonableness Clause of the Fourth Amendment was precatory, not legally operative, not a source of enforceable legal norms. Now, no one read that article. In fact, in fact, I specialize in writing law review articles that nobody reads. But that's okay. I discovered that you attract far fewer critics that way, and you can still get tenure. Now, this already long list of, of situations or issues where value judgments are integral to resolving them faithfully to the Constitution includes abortion post ops right? Uh, notwithstanding the evident desire, maybe intention of the court, in in the draft opinion, to consign all abortion issues to a rational basis test and then paddle away from the culture war. It ain't gonna work that way. Now, I'll just quote from a forthcoming Columbia Law Review article by three pro-choice scholars. Quote, judges and scholars have long claimed that abortion law Will become simpler if Roe is overturned. But that is woefully naive. Overturning Roe will create a novel world of complex interjurisdictional legal conflicts over abortion. Some states will pass laws banning their citizens from out-of-state abortions, while others will pass laws insulating their providers from out-of-state prosecutions. Close quote. Nothing in the leaked Dobbs opinion suggests to me that these guys are off the mark. Robert's notion to outsource this whole racket to legislators, I fear, is a pipe dream. What then are we to make of so many judicial protests and Supreme Court nominee protests that it's just a matter of dutifully following the law's command, it's law all the way down. To some extent, it's political pablum, and it's best to ignore it. Some of it's actually to be taken quite seriously, but it's not a description of judging. It's actually a legitimacy story told, again, not to describe what the court does, but to persuade other people that what the court does is morally justified. I leave aside the virtues of doing that. Part of it, though, raises this awkward question. Could justices who say it's law all the way down end up sincerely confused about what they're actually doing? Next, a further word about Obergefell, stanza five. Consider C, a blast from the past. Now in C, it's from Paul first Ullman. It's a kind of dry run for Griswold It's a contraception case. Uh, in, in this opinion, Harlan actually takes a, I guess you'd say, a pro contraception view. I mean, he's a, he's a liberal on contraceptives, meaning he thinks state laws banning contraception should be overturned, as they were a few years later in Griswold. So, he, he, well, to that extent, he's not an old fogey like me. Okay, C. Harlan makes plain here that marriage is ground zero of legally enforced sexual morality. This is C. This is not a gloss. This is simply just what I think I see in C. Being non-marital is what makes sodomy, fornication, adultery wrong, wrong enough to warrant criminal punishment. This complex of ideas, again in C, is inextricably wed to marriage as normative for having kids. The point of this project, Haaland also makes plain, is not extrinsic to the project, as if marriage were constructed this way by public authority with the purpose of reducing STDs or raising SAT scores. No public authority enforced and should enforce these moral truths about marriage for the sake of, as Harlan says, the moral soundness of the people, their public morals laws. Now for something completely different. D. D. All roads lead back to Obergefell in a talk like this. Uh, D is a heroic effort by Justice Alito in Obergefell to save marriage from Kennedy and friends. Alas, D is a bad go. The fault is not really Alito's, in that he is here playing the hand that social conservatives, probably a few in this room, dealt the courts in the run up to Obergefell. I suppose, though, that those conservatives were serving up to the court's conservatives what the conservatives had signaled before Obergefell would be approved arguments or plausible arguments. It's a vicious dialectic. Anyway, when you try to cross conservative moral abstinence with liberal moral promiscuity, Yes, Hadley, you only get the second base, I know. Uh, <laughs> but you, you, what, you get is, what you get is D, or something like it. That's what you get. D is what you get when you go up against a mystery passage with conservative value neutrality tying your hands. But it's like bringing a butter knife to a gunfight. OK, in D, normativity, moral normativity about sex is MIA totally gone. The soft statistical preference for locating kids in married households is justified by reference to no one's moral well-being and not at all to the husband and wife, the father and the mother. Okay, the picture, and here I am interpreting or glossing, the picture indeed of the state's relationship to marriage and people's you might say right to be married, that picture, it's as if marriage licenses are like tax abatements. Okay, both are within Caesar's gift. You receive the privilege of marrying by belonging to some cohort willing to do the state's prescribed work. This marriage is ex ante no one's natural right. This marriage is allotted to those select people who are good prospects to produce kids who avoid the juvie and who are not on Prozac by the third grade. Now in this view, why should same-sex couples be the only ones whose bids for the marriage contract are rejected? Given the stats, why should a couple where neither attended college be permitted to marry? Statistically speaking, are their kids likely to be more truants and maybe end up with a higher average number of arrests? Where either prospective husband or wife lived in a trailer park for more than three consecutive years and on down market as the state decides who can marry depending upon some projected offspring outcome. Maybe Rochelle Walensky will take charge of these expert judgments, too. Now, surely this way of thinking about marriage, indeed, would change the court's decision in Loving v. Virginia in 1967, the interracial marriage case. Biracial kids in Virginia then would have statistically lagged behind their peers on many measures of psychosocial social well-being for the simple reason that they would be social outcasts. And it's a slippery slope from there, I I say this in all seriousness, a slippery slope from there all the way back to Buck versus Bell. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, the constitutional answer to the same-sex marriage question has to be transparent and neither more nor less, frankly, than the truth about marriage. Meaning, if two men or two women can really marry, then the state would act unjustly if it prohibited them from marrying, even if the state could adduce some statistics saying or indicating that the same-sex couples as a cohort bear a slight statistical deficit according to certain metrics for their prospective children. On the other hand, if two men or two women cannot really marry, then that is why the law should not permit them to do so. Pragmatism has nothing to do with it. Okay, E1, E1 is another episode of the same series. E1. Here, moral disapproval is doing the work that Best Atmosphere did for Justice Alito. Uh, Some people in charge put a bullseye on on a disfavored group, and then bang, they're sleeping with Alexa for the rest of their lives. Okay, the final stanza. Okay, E1 is a serious case of marital misunderstanding. For one thing, Justice Scalia writes as if he is totally innocent of C, of the whole constitutional tradition up to probably sometime around 1970, the tradition that Harlan wrote about. I mean, that is, E1 seems totally oblivious to Harlan, C. Harlan reported that marriage is the principle of sexual morality. Okay, First, you understand what marriage is and what makes it the unique and valuable opportunity for human flourishing that it is. Then you deduce or infer that non-marital sex, adultery, fornication, sodomy, is wrong. That's exactly how the relevant Catholic moral theology works, too. Justice Scalia would instead reason the other way, from back to front, from a negative feeling, not only to the criminalization of sodomy, but to a definition of marriage, too. So let's linger on that organizing point. Some people's moral disapproval, which as Scalia described, as a felt, disapprobation of varying strengths or intensity. At least for Justice Alito, best atmosphere was comprised of intelligible goods, including some aspects of psychological and mental health, as well as some instrumental goods as it pertained to kids. But here, the moral disapproval, disapprobation, is a kind of inarticulate animus. Now, it might not be worth talking about it if it was just for this one ride only, a one-way ticket for one ride, but conservative constitutionalists have long relied upon the pluripotency of what they call majoritarian morality, E2. Again, conservatives have long relied upon the pluripotency of what they call majoritarian morality. They say... Quote, the fact that the governing majority in a state has traditionally viewed a particular practice as immoral is a sufficient reason for upholding a law prohibiting the practice. No. No. The The fact that some people hold belief X has no tendency to show that X is true. The fact that some hold a negative view of a sexual act because they feel strongly, they have very strong negative feelings, they're disgusted by it. That's just as inert. That's a fact about people, which might at most be one empirical premise in a chain of reasoning, along with one or more value judgments, supporting a conclusion about what ought to be done. But the fact that people think it's wrong and feel it's wrong, doesn't get the job done. Nothing of a normative nature can be supplied, derived, inferred just from that kind of fact. That fact about feelings has zero normative force unless, I suppose, one is prepared to affirm the truth of some emotivist account of the foundations of morality. But doing that, it would violate the prime directive from Starfleet Command, which is value neutrality. And in any event, emotivism is false. Now in our constitutional world, every law, every act of public authority must have a rational basis. That's the doctrinal takeaway from the draft Dobbs opinion. This universal minimum requirement <coughs> requires, however, what I'll call the internal point of view. It requires a sympathetic entry into an argument from premises to conclusion, where at least one of the premises is a moral ought. The rational basis is a loose test, and rightly so. But it is relentlessly a test about what is, in effect, a moral argument. It has to be a test of an argument that concludes with a law. This may be done. This shall be done. This must not be done. This may be done only under certain circumstances. That's what I mean by normative. Any law condemning a sexual practice needs to be made transparent for the reasons why those people, the majority, disapprove of it. For Scalia, it's an opaque fact he proposes an externalist account of rational basis, one which substitutes a description of cause and effect for moral reasoning. Okay, for what it's worth, what would those arguments, those sound rational basis arguments, look like for Scalia's list, E2, of sexual no-no's? Well, Harlan tells us all we need to know about the first tranche bigamy, adultery, fornication. Uh, They're rationally justified by the truth about marriage all the way down. Bestiality is different. It does not yet raise a question about marriage, though one does have to inquire, how old is that sheep? (laughs) Now, bans on incest rest squarely upon another moral norm, one essential to the maintenance of the family as the good that it truly is. Okay, bans on incest expressed legally the moral truth that sibling relationships be non-sexual. Okay, that's what makes them sibling relationships and for their value and for the good of people who are siblings, they must be non-sexual. Obscenity. Now that's a good question. So good, and I see some former students in the audience, but I don't think I examined a few years ago on this question, but three days ago I examined my constitutional law students on it. I asked them in so many words, what is the rational basis for laws punishing the sale of pornographic webcam performances? And you don't want to know any more about it than that. Now the answer to that question, what's the rational basis for a law punishing obscene or pornographic webcam performance? Now the answer is definitely not a three-part test. If any of you are imagining a student, imagine being a student, and that was your answer, Sorry. Uh, The doctrine, the miller test, does not tell you what, if anything, is wrong with obscenity. It just tells you what counts as porn. And the Supreme Court has not really tried to answer the rational basis question about porn since Warren Burger had a go at it in 1973. Now the upshot, Burger's opinion was in Paris, adult theater versus Slayton. Uh, 73. That's a companion case to Miller. The upshot of that multi-page exercise in circularity is F. F. So the court's scare quotes around wrong and sinful in F signal their intent to keep the critical moral viewpoint at arm's length. So-called sinful. People say it's wrong. So, too, the almost unfathomable claim of moral neutrality when asserting that there is a communal injury or a danger to public safety. Yes, there are, but it's not a morally neutral conclusion to say that. Not coincidentally, prosecutions for obscenity have gone the way of the dodo bird. The last federal indictment for trafficking in adult porn not child porn, but uh, uh, pornography depicting or including adult actors. Last indictment I think was in 2007 against Ira Isaacs in the Central District of California. State prosecutions are rare yet we are awash in a sea of sexual filth. Now there is of course another fatal flaw in E2. If the articulated feeling of someone in charge provides a rational basis then every lawmaking act necessarily has a rational basis, even this one. Daniel? Check the Okay, so bananas is Hadley's second favorite Woody Allen movie. I, I think he was attracted. To, it's from I think he's attracted to the kind of anarchic, anarchic hilarity in the early Woody movies. You know, it reminds me of the Marx Brothers. Their early movies, especially Duck Soup. You know, the pre-code. But the later movies, you know, got a lot more existential and a lot less funny. Uh, but I mean Woody's movies, not Groucho's. So, in conclusion. The chief reason for conservatives' embrace of moral abstinence is easy to identify. Their peculiar brand of restraint came into being as a strategy to halt the Warren, and to some extent, the Burger Court's judicial activism. Those were heady days for liberals, such as Bill Brennan, Thurgood Marshall, Bill Douglas, and Harry Blackman. In those days, no one really expected, and few legal professionals even wanted, disciplined constitutional reasoning, so long as the court rolled back tight-ass traditions about sexual display and stopped rednecks in their tracks. These liberal justices cited evolving standards of a decent society and set avanti to social justice, so-called. Or they thought about analytics the way Blackman surely did in Roe, Blackman surely felt that a grateful nation would soon forget any criticisms they had of the content of the reasoning of the opinion in what he predicted would be a kind of Bacchanalian revelry celebrating the right to abortion. But that was then, and this is now, the target, the adversary of constitutional conservatism is very, very different now. And it presents in a much less freewheeling way. Business suits have replaced bell-bottoms and madras jackets for the liberals. And it's clear the whole conversation is shifting at a very at a warp speed in anticipation of Dobbs. But the conversation has already shifted radically. I quoted much earlier John Roberts initiating the discussion of balls and strikes and umpiring. And then the succeeding nominees, which included Um, It's law all the way down. It wasn't Roberts. Those two speakers were Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. At her confirmation hearing, Kagan also proclaimed, we are all originalists now. Go figure. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.